Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode 31. I'm your host, Travis Streb. I've got Rachel Reimer joining me today. Rachel is a backcountry ski guide. She's a former wildland firefighter. She is a PhD researcher on gender equity. She is also a leadership development and organizational culture consultant. And man, does she have an incredible story. I'm gonna leave it to the podcast for her story, but suffice it to say, when it comes to talking about men in the workplace, she has just a ton of wisdom through her hands-on experience, her research that she's done, and just her willingness to look inwardly and to, to really dig into this issue in a serious way. We talked about primarily a story of stories. We talked about Rachel's early days, you know, navigating gender roles, uh, you know, in her own world, taking that around the world in her work as an international aid worker and a researcher, her work as a wildland firefighter, working with, you know, 85 to 90% men most of the time. And then of course, in ski guiding, where the numbers around gender diversity are similar. I'm going to leave this cast uh, for you to hear from Rachel directly. It's a doozy. Enjoy episode 31. So you, I mean, you've been working in this on this, I don't know if it's a problem. Maybe we'll call, we'll start with the, maybe a challenge, the challenge of gender um, diversity, inclusion um, for what I would say is a long time, given that it's become very vogue in the last decade, but you, it looks like based on your story, you got your start working in, in the UN and kind of fell in love with this thing. Um, can you say a little bit about how you came in to be, working and doing a PhD in, in gender diversity and in the backcountry and wildland firefighting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for sure living my life in a female body and identifying as a woman has given me certain opportunities to uh, just experience, I think, additional friction. Um, you know, I, I was a teenager, um, in like the 90s and early 2000s and um, just experienced some really strong cognitive dissonance around being empowered in some ways. You know, my father handed me a chainsaw when I was 13 and taught me how to cut firewood. And I was doing backcountry canoe trips and challenging myself to carry heavy loads on portages. But, you know, at the same time, uh, deeply aware that my competence physically and in other ways um, was threatening to my male peers. And um, so I think those insights really sparked my curiosity, but I would say also certainly a sense of resistance to the status quo and uh, a fairly strong desire to question or challenge the status quo. And I began to just attune myself to the experiences of others. So it's, it's kind of an intuitive experience when you view the world from inside. Um, 
you know, a, a female body and, um, and recognize where striving for competence may be rewarded and punished. And you have this like very difficult ambiguity. And then to suddenly realize, um, you know, in my early 20s that this was a shared experience. I think that was really powerful for me. Mm. Um, because previously, these experiences can be quite isolating. You feel like you're the only one. And, you know, why is this happening just to me? And is it my personal flaw? And and that thread continues throughout my entire life. You know, I think anyone who's working on gender-based issues um, and is a minority in their profession, you know, as I am in my, my both my mountain-based guiding profession now, but then wildland fire um, equally. So, you know, you have these healthy or and some, sometimes unhealthy experiences of self-doubt where you really question whether you're conflating your own insecurities with, you know, a bigger social problem. You're like, am I just making this up? And there's a lot of people that are saying you're just making this up. So it is, it is quite difficult to tease that out. And I think that my, really my first research project looking at women's issues um, from a gender-based, you know, a broader perspective actually happened in India in 2005. I was a, a political science major at the University of Calgary at the time. And I went to study for four months at an Indian university. And we had a large number of professors who were women, yet I knew the statistics around um, women's rights in that country. And so again, it's these, this experience of dissonance that really caused me to, to be curious. And so as an undergrad, I went above and beyond and, and wrote a survey in English that I found a student to translate into the local dialect. And then I went out into the market and found women who could read the local dialect who were vendors and selling fruit and selling things. And I, I asked questions that were related to freedom of movement. You know, did they feel free to spend money? Did they feel free to go somewhere without asking their husband? Did they feel like their local business was theirs or did they have to answer um, to you know, a male person in their household? And um, part of what gave me the courage to do that, it's certainly, you know, in hindsight, like I had no ethical oversight. I was just like doing research with human, you know, with human subjects with, you know, at an undergraduate level, I think I handed out 15 surveys, but to me it just seemed revolutionary because here I was just asking women to share their experience. And I was persevering through these barriers related to literacy and language and, you know, standing there smiling, handing them a sheet of paper I couldn't even read and that I hoped they could read. And some of them, yeah. you know, and, and then the answers I got back, my professors really helped me tease out and, and they described this experience of feeling very empowered and disempowered at the same time. And that their cultural narrative that was being shown to them in Bollywood films and in, in other ways really um, promoted this sense of, of the new identity for women in India. And certainly Gandhi's legacy of really valuing all people and seeing everyone as having inherent value, but also political value. So there's this, this deep legacy that they identified with of feeling very valued and worthy 
and a part of the political and um, social and economic fabric. However, um, really deep experiences of trauma related to uh, uh, lack of financial freedom, lack of freedom of movement, and then certainly um, just uh, sexual assault and, and harassment and violence within the context of the family being very common. Um, and so it was that survey. And then I had a very interesting experience in, uh, gosh, this is, it's kind of hilarious. I was in a beauty parlor of all places. And this is, <laughs> you know, I'm sure every young, you know, Caucasian woman who travels to an Asian country uh, decides they're going to get their legs waxed. And so this is what I was doing. <laughs> and, you know, it might sound silly. And they're laughing at me. They're like, your hair is blonde. What, why are you even doing this? And I was like, no, you know, and you realize, oh my gosh, like we we're all trying to, you know, alter our bodies into to fit this like narrative of beauty that we're just, it exists in our heads and that everyone is different. But what was interesting is it was these two young sisters that ran this salon. And as I was there one day, this very beautiful woman in, a, in an extremely opulent sari came in and she was guarded. And I use that word on purpose, guarded by her mother-in-law. And they had this really intense exchange. Um, I think it was in Marathi or I don't think it was Hindi. It was in the local dialect. And I just was a, a totally kind of mute observer. But I could see the nonverbal language that was being exchanged. And this woman was clearly in distress. And they, you know, they gave her, I forget what they did, some beauty related thing. And, uh, and then she left. And I just stayed quiet the whole time. And and the two sisters kept looking over at me and I was like, it's fine. Like just, this is obviously some kind of crisis. I don't know if it's related to beauty or what's going on. And she left and then they said to me, you know, this woman is from one of the most wealthy families and she was recently married and her family wasn't able to afford a very good dowry for her. So she's been, um, she's basically trapped in this family and is being beaten and starved and she was very thin. And so even though she was in a materially wealthy environment, the, the dynamics at play and the worth placed on a woman's life um, was such that it was reasonable for that family to you know, take it out on her that her family couldn't afford to, to pay. And so these, these types of experiences in my early 20s, I think really, um, open my eyes to just the deep complexity that surrounds gender and the power imbalances that are, you know, at, at some, in most ways, just quite dissonant. It just doesn't, it sort of defies our simplistic understanding um, that, you know, certainly has been popularized in our narratives around gender. And, and so I started seeing the complexity around women and the, the gender identity um, and the relationship to power that women have. And my work with the United Nations was another, um, you know, more official. I was running a legitimate research project for the United Nations. I wasn't just a rogue undergraduate <laughs> student wandering the markets, but, um, 
when I started to work with women in the Palestinian refugee camps, I, I learned the really uh, unique role that women play in Islamic society and the power. Um, again, many closed door conversations in women's only environments, um, because I was working at women's centers, where people shared their stories of leadership. Uh, and I started to realize that the ability to lead from within a family unit or lead from within a, um, you know, a relatively limited position of power, that that required uh, creativity, ingenuity, a fierce dedication to resilience. And, and I began to see women's leadership in these extremely complex situations, you know, a bit, a bit like water, like it finds its way through the cracks. Yeah. And, um, and you're doing a disservice. Like I've always felt, you know, I bounced back and forth between Western academic institutes and being out in the field in the world. And um, it really began to bother me the way that we talked about discrimination towards women that sort of placed them in a role of victim and only victim. And I found that to be, I started there and I found that to be quite just un, untrue to my experience. And also, um, you know, increasingly that story itself was reinforcing the fact that, you know, women needed saving, which I think is very different than addressing power inequalities, you know, and like barriers to their innate power, which they possess, we, you know, in and of themselves being expressed in a way that's valued socially and politically and, and in the world. So I started there with sort of breaking up this, this rather simplistic narrative. And we see it all the time with for me, my my work was, you know, grounded in international politics. So when, you know, the Afghan war reignited and it was like, we're saving women from the Taliban, it was like, oh my goodness, like this is extremely resonant of colonial narratives of like white men saving brown women from brown men. And this is, this is just, it's just untrue. And it reinforces um, the belief that women are innately disempowered without really addressing the power structures themselves. Um, and then what I think as I began to, you know, face my own uh, burnout and, and post-traumatic stress from working in conflict zones, I, I eventually found my way back to Canada in a more incident response role working operationally with, with wildland fire. And then my research really changed. And this is where, you know, I think in a way I wanted to unsee the complexity that I'd seen. And there was a little bit of, um, a little bit of like running away, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna run away to the mountains and run chainsaw and be super physically fit and work long hours in the wilderness. And I just, well, you I mean, you kind of jumped from like one firefighting mission to another. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, yeah, I love how you describe it as like, I, I came back and kind of hid away while you were working on initial response, wildland firefighting, which I've never done. 
but I do have friends that have done it. And I do know that that is um, a terrifying, <laughs> super dangerous, high risk job. But you, but well, you came back and did that. Yeah. And to me, it felt, you know, my, my last contract, I was working in Afghanistan. We were flying around getting shot at. And I was like, you know, flying a helicopter around a wildfire in British Columbia seems way less risky. <laughs> yeah, it's all perspective, right, Rachel? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, in some ways, I think I needed to step back from, you know, I think my personal maturity, you know, being in my 20s and trying to hold this complexity. And, and I, you know, I dove right into like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the, you know, the Lebanese, like civil war. And then I was working in Afghanistan and really it was like, whoa, I just need a time out here to process this like quite, uh, you know, whirlwind, like early career. And, um, and I think that for me, my time in wildfire was really important because it, it gave me time to really sit with those insights and, and then working with mostly men in a very oh gosh, an environment that's just really quite saturated with um, a certain version of masculinity that I've, I've actually come to call mountain masculinity because it's quite unique. Um, other researchers describe rural masculinity as a concept, um, but certainly spending a lot of time with men in very high stress environments, I began to see the complexity in the role that men play in, in this whole narrative around discrimination and harassment and just gender-based um, violence and, um, and the entire complexity that surrounds that issue. And so in the same way that those very intimate experiences in India and in Palestine helped me um, open up my eyes more to the dissonance and the complexity that women's roles um, necessitate. My firefighting career helped me see the complexity associated with the role that men play. And typically, as the story goes, they're the perpetrators, they're the beneficiaries of patriarchy, they're winning at everyone else's expense, and they are floating on invisible waves of privilege, just like over top of all of the, the things that, you know, trap the rest of us, unfortunate unprivileged folks. And so, you know, I, I think that witnessing the deep struggle that my male colleagues had with facing their own emotions, for example, or with um, feeling the need to perform um, amongst their male peers in a way that left no room for error uh, you know, working in a very, you know, it's like, it's the classic like locker room, like, oh, it's just jokes sort of yeah. environment. Yeah. But I've watched men call other men horrible names as a form of just, you know, uh, trying to motivate them positively to overcome, you know, whatever it is, a, a physical fitness barrier or a skills-based barrier. And, you know, I have a colleague that I've I began doing some work with the United States Forest Service and I have a colleague there who told me of a fire crew that actually made a t-shirt that said powered by shame and I, oh I feel goodness. like that because I know I feel like Ugh. that could sum up the entire 
you know, my entire experience within the wildland fire community, certainly with my boots on the ground. Um, and I think it also, you know, it's really comfortable when you're flying around the world in a, the role of an international aid worker. And, you know, when I showed up and was working, uh, living in Beirut, you know, the, when I walked through the refugee camps, they were like, you know, you're this Western woman who's an academic and you're different. So it, I wasn't a part of the community. So I could, I could sit in and have these circles and do, do this research and I could, um, in a certain way, um, you know, my own identity, while I questioned the role, certainly anytime you're in a room, you impact the conversation. But I wasn't as implicated in the findings as I was when I started doing research on wildland fire because I was a wildland firefighter. And so that for me was, I think, you know, the time out that I took um, from really seriously looking at these, these questions from a research perspective, you know, when I was just fighting fires and just yeah. <laughs> kind of learn, learn, learn the skills, like how do you manage a wildfire? How do you manage a crew? How do you manage yourself? How do you master these these skill sets, you know, I became a certified faller. Um, yeah, you know, these are, that was a really important time for me. And, and my work, my research work really shifted. So I, I switched from being um, a researcher sort of like outside of the narrative, like describing this narrative and pretending to be outside of it. You never actually are. Um, but suddenly I switched into what's called insider action research. So action research is a whole field of research studies that is um, a collaborative problem solving approach to research. So typically it's a community based or organizational based uh, form of doing social science research that um, uses research tools to help promote problem solving so there's there's a challenge there's a something that's affecting this group of people we want to transform this or use this as a moment for learning and so you engage in the process and three steps look think and act um, and so you look to see what is you inquire into people's experiences you reflect and you actually ask folks to reflect themselves on what do you think this means for you um, and then you you solicit action steps. So I, in almost every project I've done um, since making that transition into action research, I ask people what they want to see, mm. what, what their ideal future looks like and how, what they want the organization or their group, what are the action steps they see that uh, would help achieve that ideal future for themselves. And, and then the fun part is implementing that and you actually get to to take some action and then see what happens and see if you are actually correct in affecting the change you wanted to affect. And, and this is, I mean, this all sounds like wonderful, but when you are doing it as a member of the community, it's fraught with so much complexity that it's, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I can circle back to that, you know, younger teenage part of me that's like, is this just me? Am I the only person feeling this way? And, um, and so there was a lot of self-doubt involved in that process, but over, over time, I think what I 
what I realized is that as I began posing these questions, um, there was a strong pushback from some of my peers um, who were like, this is, this has nothing to do with wildfire. This is about you. When you say your peers, do you mean your research peers or your peers working in wildland firefighting? No, my peers working in wildland firefighting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they knew what very... you were up to and they were, and they were, this is, they're like, this is a you problem. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Fully. It was like, this is a you problem and you're a feminist spy and we don't trust you. Oh, like you were trying to infiltrate the mafia or something. Yeah, exactly. I was wow. trying to like, oh yeah, it was, I, you know, to some people I was like firefighting feminist Barbie, like, oh my God, she's falling trees and like slaying patriarchy. And I was like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's, that's like a lot of pressure guys. <laughs> like, that is, yeah, that's a lot, a lot you know. of weight on your shoulders to be the Gosh. feminist firefighting Barbie. Wow. No. Yeah. I was like, I can't, I can't, you know, I had a, a group of firefighters in the United States, they're um, smoke jumpers and they're like, just come down here and fight, a, you know, do a season of firefighting with us. And, and I was like, gosh, guys, I don't like, you haven't successfully put a woman through your new recruit training in like almost a decade. Like, I don't like, you want me to come in and just like, you know, make it through your like gnarly hazing process just to prove a point. Like, I don't, I don't yeah. need to do, like I don't need to do that and put myself through that. But that was so on some tokens, people were like, You you are the future. This is amazing. But then on on the other side, there was very much this strong pushback that, you know, if you put up your hand and describe a problem, you are the problem. And and thankfully, you know, I think that that put me through a lot of personal pain and self-doubt and and certainly you know, a lot of sleepless nights, but, but I also, as I hone my skills as a social science researcher, anytime there's an extremely strong pushback, um, you're like, what is going on here? We're on to <laughs> you something. Know, like, yeah. yeah, you're like, hmm, <laughs> this question seems awfully threatening to you. <laughs> like what, you know, what is, what is vested in not asking this question? What are we protecting? Like, you know, if there's truly no problem, if this is truly not an issue, then this should just be, uh, there should be no heat around this issue. It should just be boring. Uh, and yeah. and if, if you're getting this really strong response, I, I began to realize that, ooh, this is actually quite a, quite a, a deeply, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of tension around this issue. So you know, I needed to learn to tread very gently because I was inside that community. I wasn't, you know, it's not, it wasn't like the Palestinian refugee camps where I could, you know, go home to my apartment and sort of separate myself physically and emotionally from the subject matter. It's like I, I was in it. I was working very long, long days, long seasons and relying and trusting these people with my personal safety and you know, so if I'm challenging the status quo, um, it's quite a delicate dance. But through through learning to ask questions and learning to listen. So when someone said to me, you know, you sexism doesn't exist, you are making it up. I was like, what makes you think that? You know, instead of being yeah. like, yeah. here's all, you know. <laughs> yeah. Here's all the data. Yeah, you're an asshole. <laughs> That's the best <laughs> way to win an argument. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just jump straight to accusations and name calling. Yeah, that was, you know, it's like you're a feminist 
spy. No, you are. <laughs> it's like, wait. <laughs> so, you know, eventually I had to say, okay, like this is, this is obviously deeply threatening. What is going on here? And, uh, and I remember one, gosh, there's this one encounter I had with a colleague who, I mean, I made him so angry that he cried from anger at me. That's, which you, I think you is, should know that's very hard to do because yeah. we're really, as you know, as men, we're very good at jumping to anger, but hard, hard to transition us into sadness and grief. Oh, yeah. That's good. Wow. It was like, yeah, angry, angry tears. But, you know, at the, that point where the conversation reached its climax, um, you know, body language and anger was what was emanating but what the words were what he said was you know some of us have really strong emotions too and we don't always uh, feel like we can share them and i was like okay you're standing like inches from my face like angry like almost spitting on me and i'm like okay but what you're what you're trying to convey to me is that like the reason you're angry when i start talking about women in firefighting is that you don't feel like you're being treated fairly either. Yeah. And you know what? It took a lot of courage for me to hold my ground in those conversations and just, you know, sometimes quite literally just get yelled at and then realize like this, what is going on? Like this is, where is this anger coming from? And when I, when I had that insight and I thought, huh, okay. So so I'm talking about, you know, femininity being seen as weakness and that women are associated with femininity. So then women get seen as weak or less than. And suddenly the, the men I'm working with are lighting up with these super strong emotions that they don't know how to deal with. And what I had begun to recognize was that men also felt that they were following or being forced to follow this set of unwritten unspoken rules um, that they had to be strong, which meant not showing any emotion, that anger was the only appropriate emotion, and that um, the privilege that they were experiencing, and let me be correct, they are experiencing, you know, the invisible privilege that comes with being male in, you know, in all of the associations that get made with maleness, you know, more effective leaders, more physically strong, more competent and rational, you know, as opposed to women and femininity, who, which is associated with intuitive, less rational, less physical strength, less competent yeah. leadership, you know, but what was happening is that these, the men that I was working with were, were paying a very dear price for that privilege. And the simple narrative of men doing things to women, doing bad things to women or men oppressing women or, you know, men enjoying the benefits of patriarchy and just being like kind of willfully oblivious to the impacts of their actions on others. You know, that story stopped making sense for me. And I was able to, you know, through some of the, the anger from my colleagues, um, you know, and I, I worked in a very remote area and I was the only woman crew leader out of, um, you know, 40 firefighters. And so it just was, you know, certainly was a tough go for me, but I was very aware that what I was learning through having those really difficult workplace experiences 
um, was just so invaluable. Like, I don't think I could have learned that from, from being in an academic institution and doing research on this. Like it was, it was day in, day out, you know, having those, those difficult conversations, having those moments where, and you know, I felt like my firefighting skill sets were really deeply respected, um, but that the questions I was asking were so deeply threatening to some people's sense of identity that there just was this, this tension that was there. Yeah. And, um, you know, and eventually my, I began to see, you know, that I had to put down my chainsaw and pick up my computer and my pen, you know, metaphorically that I, I wasn't going to change the world by being firefighting feminist Barbie. I needed to, actually turn my attention and my skill set to articulating this more effectively and and this, <laughs> you know this i didn't i feel like i didn't choose this path because it's an incredibly difficult path i was on a ski trip with there's three of us firefighting women and we were at the asulkin hut here in revelstoke and we were ski touring up and you know we're just like definitely venting and yeah. as you do and and in the evenings where we got got into the whiskey and you know we're like this like this patriarchal bullshit and we're just like now you know going on and full venting and then we we all really like let our anger loose because when you meet other women in in firefighting like you might see them in fire camp or meet them on fires but you're not really free um there's a lot of like, you know, whispering or, or nonverbal type, like we don't want to be seen talking negatively about the men that we work with because we feel a strong sense of loyalty. And so it was really beautiful to me that the backcountry ski environment created this safe space for us to just really connect and say, you know, this, this is something we're not happy with. Um, and what, ended up happening around that table in the Aselkin hut is that we're like, you know what? All three of us had had the experience where someone in our workplace in fire had told us to quit because we were too strong headed as women. And it was this moment where we're like, wait, they told you that too. And I was like, well, I thought I was the only, wait, you know, there's three of us that have had this experience in three different parts of the province. And we're like, wait a minute, this is a systemic issue. Yeah. And, and then, and it was amazing because it just, it just dawned on us. And then one of them said, someone needs to do their research project on this. Someone needs to do a master's on this. And we all just sat there. And one of them's like, well, I'm already in nursing school. And then my other friend said, well, I'm doing my master's in forestry already. And they both looked at me and I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> I just drew the short straw. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so it's, you know, and a year later I'd started my master's and, and in a way, you know, I could laugh off that conversation and say like, yeah, you guys, like, I don't, I don't want to take that path. But I did feel a sense of, you know, a, a kind of a sense of duty um, that I certainly knew I had the research skill set. I knew I had the courage to do it. I knew I had the insights. And, you know, I had done enough healing through my own post-traumatic stress and the, you know, the challenges of doing research in conflict zones with women and hearing, you know, dozens and hundreds of stories of assault and abuse and a lot, a lot of child 
uh, sexual abuse. And so I really, I did need to step away to refresh myself. But at the time we had that conversation in the Asulka and I thought, you know, doing gender-based research is hard and I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to step back in. And I think that we were right and it was a systemic issue. And it is very difficult to have these conversations when you are a minority in your workplace and the easy answer is that it's your fault. And this is where research provides the language and the tools to actually create social change because it lifts it out of this individual perspective, you know, where you know, maybe someone felt they need to prove themselves and so they came on too strong. So then they're associated with being this like overbearing kind of bitchy prove themselves type person. And so we miss that. We're like, oh, it's just their individual problem. It's their personality that's too strong. Those are the phrases we often hear. They have a strong personality or, um, you know, they just, they just came on too strong or they feel like it feels like they've got a chip on their shoulder and they're out to prove something. And what we, we miss is the systemic cultural norms that um, really force all of us to prove ourselves all the time and women more so, but equally men are on that same treadmill of never enough and only be this type of masculinity. And that's why it's so deeply threatening when women like myself or others start showing up and trying to actually bring the femininity into the conversation because men have been taught, we've all been taught in our society that femininity is weakness. And men and women, all human beings, have this beautiful balance of masculinity and femininity within us. And, and for many men, it's not until they become a parent or they start leading a team that suddenly they realize they're lacking a skill set that they actually really need. They, many men don't know how to nurture or to be empathic or to act from a place of emotional intelligence because very early on they're taught that that's not a skill set they need to acquire. It's just not a critical skill set for them. Or for it's, them I mean, or even, I mean, the, it's kind of programmed out. Oh, exactly. It's, I would say it's shamed out actually yeah. like more, more appropriately. Yeah. yeah. Because it, you know, every, every young boy is, is taught that those emotions are unacceptable. And so it's not, it's not just like not needed. It's, it's bad for you to be like that. Like, yeah, they're if you, un, like they're un, undesirable. Exactly. Yeah. And you get socially punished, if not in your family, then certainly amongst your peers. Yeah. And that was something that I, I really began to see. So when I started actually moving into graduate research on gender uh, in the mountain based professions, what I started to see in the data set was uh, evidence for describing the experience that men have. And, and in, in, my, in my interviews, I actually had some, some men describe decades of bullying that deeply damaged them. And I, I had one, one person actually say that he felt safer when there were women in his workplace because he felt like he could be his real self, where when he was in all male environments, he felt more at risk as a sensitive man. And he felt like he needed to hide 
those parts of himself. And I, I suddenly began to see with empathy, you know, like when I see another woman in a male dominated profession, you know, of which I'm, I'm in many, I might, you know, perhaps wrongly, but mostly correctly assume that she and I might have some shared experiences of having to persevere through additional social barriers or of having to sort of wrestle with, um, you know, being, being a minority uh, or having just to, to work a little harder in order to find my place. And so we have almost this like external cue that there might be an ally or a safe person for us. And that's not always the case. And certainly, you know, women friendships in male dominated environments are, are fraught with complexity. But I began to realize that for men, they have no way of knowing who's a safe person for them. You know, that, that everyone is so effectively hiding behind that mask of masculinity that, you know, for the, the men in my research who shared those experiences of bullying, you know, like they were just looking for someone who would understand them, that they could have more wholehearted and real and engaged conversations with. And um, I began to realize that that's a, that's a unique form of loneliness yeah. that, that can just be heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's been my experience um, individually and it's been my experience leading, you know, leading men's groups and um, it's true. And, you know, there's a, there's a, you've, I mean, I would imagine you've come across this. There's a piece of research around this in the, in the corporate world from Jennifer Berdahl. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this, and I've talked about this, I've talked about this research on this podcast probably 10 times now, my listeners are getting sick of it, but <laughs> it's so true. You know, the, one of her big conclusions was like, n- men, we don't want to speak up because it's, it's like, nobody wants to say the emperor's got no clothes, but like most, most men, as the research bears out, most men hate the masculinity you know, kind of toxic masculinity workplace culture, especially in, in corporate. I would imagine that exists in, in wildland firefighting. You called it um, mountain masculinity. I'm sure it's just a different texture of the same thing, but it's like, mm-hmm. we all kind of hate what's going on, but we don't want to be the ones to say it just in case we're the only ones <laughs> going back to your high school <laughs> experience. Yes, exactly. And that's where um, I think what, where I found the power in my research is that it's, it's given me the tools to really live my values in the world because I can talk about uh, gender-based issues in, in male-dominated professions in a way that it, it's a cultural problem. Yeah. This is not a men's problem or a women's problem. This is not about one group of people doing something to another group of people. And that is, you know what, if, like, if it were factual and it made sense, like, certainly, you know, my, like, angry teenage, like, late 90s feminist, like, years, like, I would love to be able to justify, you know, the type of, like, anger and and rage that uh, is a part of coming to grips with gender-based violence. Like, that is for sure. A, a place we move through, it is not the place we want to land in 
because it just doesn't make sense. It is not, it is not accurate for us to move into blame on these issues. What is accurate is to start to describe these circumstances that we all find ourselves in and that the impact on you, for example, as a, as a male who identifies as a man, you will be impacted differently by these cultural norms and I will be impacted differently, but we are both subject to, to similar sets of expectations. And I, I think this is what's very important is that we, you know, for, for women, it looks, it looks different than it does for men. The impacts are different. Some of the cultural expectations are different, but there's a similar um, norm around proving oneself and that femininity is weakness and masculinity is strength. And certain types of masculinity are privileged over others. And so we are all collaborating in keeping these cultural norms alive. Um, and I think that that, you know, it really, in my work, when I've, when I've spoken with groups of men and I, I do a lot of workshops and a lot of consulting work in my own practice, it's like, this is what gives people the breathing room to talk about these issues because they're not getting yelled at. They can, they're like, oh, like, first of all, I'm allowed to say that this has hurt me too. That's really important. Like, and, and I, gosh, it is, um, I had a hilarious experience at a conference. Oh, I, I'm a very bold person at times when I pr probably shouldn't be, but I, there's a panel speaking on uh, gender issues and they presented it in wildfire as if it was all men doing things to women, men doing things to women. And every person on the panel was like, Rachel, we're so glad you're here. You have this like amazing perspective. And I was, I was just in the audience, I was speaking later at the conference. And I was listening to what they're saying. I'm like, gosh, this is just, this is just not accurate. And so I stood up and I was one of the first people to ask a question. And I, <laughs> I started and I started my question with the statement, many people would feel that feminism has failed men because we haven't taken into account men's experiences of this. Where in your work are we able to see the cost to men? And I said, you know, this fire season alone, I've seen every single male leader in my, my workplace, you know, one-on-one -on -one with me in tears, overwhelmed by stress and emotions that they don't feel safe sharing with their male peers. What are we gonna do about that? And the audience clapped, which I was like, haha. But later, what the leader is one uh, female academic, you know, from Texas, full disclosure, came up to me afterward and said, you know, I was really hoping that you wouldn't use that word. We deliberately avoided using that word. And I was like, what word? She's like, feminism. And I was like, oh gosh, huh. we, we, need to, we need to be able to have this conversation yeah. and to own up, like for us to get up on a stage and try to talk about gender-based issues in these workplaces, like we need to be honest that we are this, the feminist movement over time has not always been inclusive. In the early days, it was not class inclusive. It was not race and ethnicity inclusive. And it certainly wasn't even inclusive of folks who had, you know, uh, bisexual or homosexual 
orientations. It was, you know, the feminist movement has a dirty history of excluding people until it has to include them. And I think this is a beautiful part of this conversation is that we're opening our doors more and more. And now we have this whole area of masculinity studies and, you know, we're, we're opening to this, but I just felt like it was really important to acknowledge that a lot of men have felt like this conversation isn't about them, that it doesn't include them and that it only includes them as the villain and that they need to apologize for being men, that they're not allowed to celebrate masculinity. And I think that's where a lot of anger comes from and and where people just feel like they don't have, they don't have a way to relate to this conversation. And from a cultural change perspective, I work with, you know, right now the the guiding profession in Canada, it's 85% male. So like we are, if we want to create cultural change, like it is absolutely unrealistic to expect that the 15%, if if I only talk to those who are minorities, uh, gender minorities, that that's an effective strategy. It's just not effective. Like this, this is a conversation that includes everyone. And I think, you know, as a feminist researcher, I need to be willing to acknowledge the ways that you know, this, this bigger heritage has not always been inclusive and welcoming towards men. It, it's, and I think that many men want to come into this conversation and want to feel like they're a valued part of it and that there are, there are barriers and that some of those, um, as we can take responsibility for as feminist activists, we can say, oh yeah, you know, I maybe came out a little strong at certain <laughs> certain times in our history there, you know, and to just say like now, starting now, let's have a blame-free and shame-free conversation about this. Let's move this into a whole different level where we're talking about cultural norms and impacts. And that has nothing to do with blame or shame. And we're not talking about fault. We're talking about impacts and what is this cultural legacy that we've been handed where, you know, masculinity is strength, femininity is weakness, whether you're male or female, you are expected to perform in a certain way and to censor all of the things about you that are associated with weakness. And what that creates is a whole host of leadership challenges, mental health challenges. It creates really high sexual harassment and gender discrimination rates and really high suicide rates. These are measurable negative outcomes. This is not just like we need to change because it's mean and we need to like do the right thing or something like it's, it's not about that. This is, this is about being effective on our teams, performing, thriving, trusting one another. I'm not, I never approach the teams I work with, with, with this sort of like moralistic, like we need to do this because it's the right thing. And you could take a human rights approach to this and be very valid. And it is the right thing. However, I think, in the same way that it's just not factual or accurate to come from a blame-based approach, when we're, we're speaking about team performance and like, why should I go through the pain and the discomfort of changing and facing all this stuff when I can just pretend it's not here and kind of coast on for another decade? The reason why is because it's hurting our effectiveness as teams, as, as humans. We're just not thriving and well, it's measurable. Yeah. That that's a, that's a that's such an important point. Like it's the, it is about, are we creating 
cultures, environments where people feel like they can thrive. And that's, that's the crux of it. Like, can we create something better as opposed to, can we blame each other for what was, and then, you know, find some mediocre solution where we don't talk about differences. And and I, you, you said, you know, blame, blame free and shame free zone. I think the other one that's, that I see is like the kind of savior free zone. Like a lot of, you know, you and I both work in, in corporate leadership as well, right? I mean, the, a, a fairly dominant narrative that I see as well is like that we as men are going to like save, like save women or create the environment where, um, you know, we're kind of lifting them up. And I, you know, I just, I, I, I just don't think that's the way forward. Like it's a, it's more like, how do we get together and figure out what do we want to build? Not like, let me give you a hand up. It's a, it's a... Well, and this, so <laughs> this is a, a challenging one. I just had a conversation with a client this week where, you know, they had mis, mishandled a, a situation and there had been like a public bullying and shaming event on their team. And they were like, oh, I said nothing. And I, you know, and, and they, they were like, okay, from, you know, we had some coaching conversations around this and they're like, from this point onwards, there will no longer be bullying or shaming on my team. And I was like, does that seem like a reasonable yeah. <laughs> goal for, and, yeah. and he was, he was like, well, yeah, I just won't allow it. And I'm like, okay, I want, I'm invested in your success here and in your team's success. Let me be honest with you that I think that is a really unrealistic goal. Yeah. And he was like, what, you, what? And I'm like, you cannot control other people's behavior. Like some of these older, you know, generation or, or deeply invested in a certain version of masculinity, they, they will continue to act in shaming and bullying ways. And until they change or more likely, you know, accountability mechanisms, uh, you know, perhaps encourage them to, to move, either do the work of personal growth and learning or move on to a team that resonates with their values more. Um, you know, this will keep happening and it's not up to you to be the savior. And that if you, if you have to accept that you can't control other people's behavior, you can control how you respond. And I think that this, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about allyship and, uh, you know, how men can be allies for women. And and what really opened my eyes was when, uh, you know, I had a couple interview participants in my, my graduate research share that they felt safer when women were in their work environment. And I suddenly realized that, like, this is, again, introducing some more complexity here, that women can be allies for men, that this is not, there's not like a one-way street here where, um, you know, the masculinity contest culture, I often liken to like a game of King of the Castle, which we, we've yeah get on top of the pile, That's right. stay on top of the pile, like push other people down. And it's this image of like, you're on top of the pile, you're going to reach your hand down and help someone up. And to me, I'm like, you know what? This is a stupid game. Yeah. I don't want you to help me to the top of the pile. We need to come up with a whole different way of relating. Yeah. Like if you're just helping me to the top of the pile, great. I'm on the top of the pile. That means I'm going to have to push other people down if I want to stay up here. And, and I don't, 
and this is this is what the challenge is for me is that we're not we're not seeking to replace the person or the gender identity or the you know ex whatever sexual fluidity of the person on top of the pile we we need to come up with a whole different paradigm of how we relate and for me i think this is this frees up our energy when we stop trying to play that game it it helps us thrive more because we're spending less energy in trying to maintain the type of characteristics that place us at the top of that pile because it it's a huge amount of effort and a lot of us are censoring qualities that our teams actually really need for us to embody if they're if they're going to thrive and i mean a classic example is empathy emotional intelligence um, I had a whole team in, in the fall, I was doing a training. I had an entire room of people melt down over the concept of empathy when I introduced it. Wow. And <laughs> it was amazing. I know. I was like, what? And I just had, you know, one of the, you know, the social, uh, someone with a lot of social power in that group put their hand up and they're like, I'm sorry. I just need to say that, first of all, we don't have time for empathy in in this you know mountain guiding job that we've got here this heli skiing job i don't have time for empathy um i'm not good at it and i just don't think it's necessary and i was like whoa and he made this really strong case spoke very passionately and i just i looked around the room and i saw people nodding and i was like who else feels this way put your hand up and the whole room was like yep wow. no time for empathy not necessary we're not good at it Good at it. This is our like our learned skill set is to be direct to communicate effectively. We're in a high paced operational environment. This is not necessary. And I was like, okay, we're going to do a deep dive into empathy here, folks, because this is a real problem. Yeah. This is a huge problem. And I shared a story from my my firefighting days where I had a crew member. Um, we had a, a really horrible. Um, wildfire that started that super strong winds and we were the only crew on the south flank of fire and we were getting pushed uh you know the fire was burning over our line and pushing us and jumping gully to gully and we were really um pressed um and aviation it was too, <laughs> it was too way windy. to put it it sounds like. yeah it was challenging it was a little challenging um you know and we aviation was called off you know and so often when you're on the ground you're like okay well at least we've got aviation support and then you know it comes over the radio like it's too windy you're on your own for the next hour and we're like whoa okay we managed to pull it off and we were on that fire it, it burned for the whole rest of the summer and it was it was uh you know very challenging and one of my crew members started showing anxiety uh, mm. after that fire and and my first response was you are feeling anxiety you are the weak link you can't handle the stress of this job maybe you just need a timeout and mental health leave, but I'm running a crew here. I can't afford to have an ineffective person. And I was like, whoa, Rachel, that is, you are victim blaming. That is an interesting response as a leader. Yeah. And so then, you know, my next thought cycle was, okay, no, that's not nice. That's like very shaming. Like what, you know, maybe, maybe we can think about some supports and, and what we could do as a crew to support this person. And, and then still there was just this subtle, like, you know, they're the weak one, we need to help them. I, we need to be the savior of this person. And I was like, no, that still doesn't feel right. 
And then finally I had this thought, which was just, it made me sick to my stomach. And it was like, you are the leader of this crew, Rachel. If this person is feeling anxiety, it is probably due to some aspect of your leadership and the tone that's being set. And this, this person might be the canary in the coal mine that's singing, but we are all affected here, including myself. And I was like, oh, it's really uncomfortable yeah. to think about. <laughs> like, oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Gosh, I was like, oh man, you know. And so then I thought, okay, we're going to sit everyone down. And I just said, I asked this person's permission. I said, you know, I'm really glad you shared that with me. I would like to have a conversation. I suspect other people might be feeling this way. And he's like, yeah. And I sat down with everyone. I said, you know, this, this individual has been having some anxiety as we go to new fires. Um, probably, you know, linked to this first major event we had this season. Is anyone else feeling this way? And everyone's like, yeah, we're all really stressed. I'm like, okay, who's not sleeping? Okay, bunch of you. Okay. <laughs> what can we do differently? And we, and people started saying, you know, some of the direct communication, like, you, you know, you, I had a tendency to do a briefing as we pulled up to the fire, like wheels rolling. And then as soon as we stopped, it was like, get out, start doing things right? You've got yes. landowners looking at you. You've got a wildfire that's getting worse by the second. It makes sense. And I, and they're like, that kind of stresses us out. And I'm like, oh man, that's yeah. it's really hard for me to hear that my leadership style and this really action oriented time pressured approach is stressing people out. And, and I had this huge response in me that was like, you guys just aren't cut out for this then. Like it, this is, this is, the job, you either do it or you don't. And I was like, no, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a different way. I don't want to take that old school shaming approach here. My intuition is like, there's a, there's a better way. And I have a mindfulness practice I have for years. And I thought, you know, what if we just took like, you know, one or two deep belly breaths as a crew together, you know, yeah. maybe that's going to be like a 10 second delay, but it would just reset our nervous systems you know, it might help address the anxiety. And everyone's like, yeah, that sounds great. We'll just do that in the truck. You know, we'll make a plan, we'll pull up and then just take a couple of deep breaths, let everyone sort of absorb what their role is and what their task is. And then we'll, we'll activate and we'll go to do it. And I tell you that 10 seconds, the first few times we did that, it felt like an eternity. I was like, we are wasting time. And I'm yeah. like, you're fine. We should you're be fine. stressing <laughs> out right now. I know. I was like, you're okay, Rachel, just breathe. Like, you know, and it was, it was hilarious to observe my mind and how much, like I had embodied that belief that we don't have time for empathy. We don't have time to let someone's feelings change how we operate in a high stressed, fast paced operational environment, uh, you know, and at, but I was like, you know what, I, another part of me recognizes the value in this. And so we experimented with it. And that 10 seconds of breathing together increased our effectiveness as a team tenfold. Suddenly people started sleeping again. We felt like we were uh, on the same page. Um, there was much more effective communication, like even operationally between us and Later in the season, that person who'd been experiencing anxiety, we had a, a house that was threatened. And, you know, I, I was able to trust that person with a critical time-sensitive task that they pulled off, no problem. And it was a huge win for that person. Like their self-confidence 
grew, my trust in them grew. Instead of seeing them as the weak link, I began to really value their courage for speaking up. And I shared that story with my clients and, uh, and I said, you know what, I actually, I actually believe the opposite, that the faster pace and more high stress your environment is, the more critical empathy is as a skill set. Because if you don't understand one another, your communication under stress will not be as effective. If people are like, it's just, it's increasing noise in the field. If they're trying to manage their own emotions that they don't feel are safe to be shared with their team, that takes energy for them to do that. If they just feel like they can trust their team and everyone's on the same page, the, the flow and the performance the effectiveness of the communication and the effectiveness of risk management when there is critical outcomes and, and it is, you know, life or death environments, it's, it just makes things better. And I think that we have been living with this myth that to be high performing, to be strong, we just, we just don't have time for, for these like quote unquote soft skills or things like empathy and emotional intelligence that, um, you know, kind of coincidentally or so it seems have been shamed out of us as yeah. children, especially as men. Yeah. And so we've created a lot of workplace cultures that validate that story that we don't have time for empathy. We don't have time for emotional intelligence or their lesser skill sets. And that the real important skill sets are, um, you know, more operational effectiveness type type skills and having direct communication and, and that that's what's important. Um, so I think that we've, in some ways we've been our own worst enemies, but when we bring awareness to it, we can recognize that we've been our own worst enemies and that by softening a little bit and being willing to be uncomfortable and to practice something that we've believed to be weakness, will actually give us those lived experiences on our teams where suddenly, like I did, I suddenly realized, wow, this thing that, you know, that 10 seconds of breathing, like I had to fight every urge in my body to just jump up and leap into action, you know, but I did, I was present with that discomfort. I was willing to experiment. And then what I saw, the effects of that actually convinced me so thoroughly that you know, when my research findings validated it, I was like, yeah, this makes, you know, this makes sense with my lived experience now. This isn't something that's like this pretty theory about empathy and, and high performance on teams. I've seen the effects of this in very high stress work environments. And I, I believe it to be true. And in as much as the research also points in that direction. And I think that's where, you know, for men who feel this desire to save others, I would encourage them to start with themselves and to look at the parts of themselves that they feel incredibly uncomfortable with and to gently experiment with bringing those to their teams and to their workplaces and really just be present with themselves. And if, if they want, you know, if you want to think about it this way, rather than, um, you know, saving the, the woman or the, the, the minority of you know, any kind. Yeah, or the malaligned femininity yeah. in the world. Like rather than trying to like rescue this like sort of, you know, feminine <laughs> essence out there embodied in the women in your workplace, start looking at the feminine within. Yeah. Look, because guaranteed, if you've been raised a man in this culture, 
you have a very hurt, damaged femininity inside of you that is just crying for your attention and for your support, your love, for you to give it time and to allow it to shape your leadership and to be a part of you and to not have your inner critic constantly like shaming that part of you. And so I, I do think that the impulse to help is beautiful. And I, I think it just needs to be slightly redirected because there, for every man I've known in my life, and I've been lucky to have some wonderful mentors and uh, folks I do consider allies, when folks reach out to me with that desire to help and to support, I, I can see in themselves that they're really trying to heal that part of themselves yeah. by helping me. It's this like, okay, Rachel's this external person. I believe in yeah. her mission. I, I deeply resonate with it. I feel hurt when she gets mistreated because of the questions she's asking and the work she's doing in the world. And I'm like, you know what? That love you're, you're, and support you're offering to me, there's a huge part of you yeah. that you're trying to heal. And, and you know, maybe, maybe that's part of the gifts that these, you know, for, for me, you know, mentorship and allyship is not a one-way street. And maybe, you know, I offer that proxy. I'm like the way that someone might begin to see how to love the feminine in themselves. But I think ultimately men need to do that work of, of inviting the nurturing, like, you know, the soft, quote unquote, the empathic, the emotional intelligence, the sensitive parts of themselves to the table in themselves and then also to their teams. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the, I think the best, the best way for men to be allies of allies in creating a future that we actually want to be part of for any gender. It is about looking inside and about having those conversations in the company in many times of other men, like in, or in a, in a place that feels safe. Um, you know, I, I think it's an area that, that women, whether they've been forced to or not, have just been better at of creating a safe place to have conversations about, am I the only one or this is what's going on? You know, the more I, I find myself in the company of, of, of men that, you know, where it feels safe, you know, the more open I feel, the more I convene them, the more openness I see from, from men. But it is, that to me is the greatest act of, of allyship, if we want to use that word, is to, I, I love the way you put it. It's like, you know, don't project that out at women, like project the, the vulnerability, the fear, the hurt, whatever it is, bring it inside and go, well, what is like, what's happening for me in this? My instinct to mm -hmm. save or my instinct to love or to whatever is probably there's something going on inside. Um, yeah, it's a, I actually, I mean, I think it's the antidote for the future that we're, <clears throat> that we're, or sorry, the antidote to the future that we don't want, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I, I also love the, this idea that there's a coming together of, of genders and what, you know, what, whether it's, um, you know, whether I, I, I think it's overdue, we still have a lot of, I think we still have a lot of room for people that are of, with shared experience to come together. And I, I don't, I think that's really important. 
and then there's there's a time though and i i think we're we're past it um to to have the conversation together mm-hmm. a, a bit like you and i are having but on a in a in a macro scale mm-hmm. because there's i'm sure i mean you've convened these conversations as have i there's a ton of of shared experience there's lots that's unique but there's like there's so much that's that's common especially when it comes to things like are the world of work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, um, what I, I know I want to, I want to close with, with something here. I'm trying to find the, you know, the magic question, which I don't have, but you know, what would be your, what would be your, your biggest hope? for the work that you're doing to like, how would you love to see it come to life in a way you haven't yet? Well, I think um, the, (laughs) the current project that I'm, I'm working on is to bring this conversation um, to an international scope. And currently I'm, I'm steering a, a research project with a you know a large budget and uh, three countries guiding associations and starting to have this this conversation and for me you know certainly uh, Bradal's work was really uh, confirming but I also gosh so great as a researcher that there's a community of people because when someone writes a paper and establishes these connections, you're like, oh good, I don't have to do that research. It's already, <laughs> yeah, that's, it's already been, yeah. that's already been proven. And so, you know, what's amazing, what's amazing is that now we can see, you know, there's been, there's been a uh, sort of a critical amount of research establishing these connections between, um, you know, masculinity contest or hyper-masculinity based workplaces and, and the whole host of predictable now, um, you know, it's very likely that you would also see leadership challenges, sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and high suicide rates. So for me, what I'm curious about is resilience. And this is where, um, you know, I, this has been revolutionary for me in a couple ways. Um, I'm working on my, my PhD through a university in Australia, and I got there having received a huge amount of funding and a bunch of support for a research concept that was going to look more deeply into harassment, discrimination, and gender identity-based issues. And I got there and I suddenly realized that I, I want to also thrive and that the type of hardship I went through um, with my wildfire research, I just was no longer willing to, to do that in my, my postgraduate research that I felt like I didn't want to spend the next four years of my life um, you know, doing this work. And so Bridal's study really helped me realize like I didn't need to, I had other choices. And, and to be honest, I was at a huge loss for where to go next, how to move this conversation forward. And I'm so grateful to my supervisors and the, the school there. Cause I, I was like, I don't know what to do. And they said, you know what, maybe you should just go surfing for a couple of weeks and just think about it. And I was yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I took my fears and I took my uncertainty 
and exactly that question you just asked, you know, what is the next step? Where does, where is the muse innovation yeah. leading me? How do I follow my intuition and sort of establish a new trail um, for myself in a way that helps me express my values and also serve the world? And I took that with me on my surfboard and, and just spent a long time in the ocean um, on the East coast of Australia. And, you know, eventually, came back, you know, saltwater logged and maybe a little bit of a better surfer, but I had clarity, which was amazing. And what I am excited about right now is understanding the personal strategies of resilience that uh, mountain guides and those in the guiding profession worldwide are cultivating and the reason I've chosen this profession is because it's one that I'm a part of but I also think that certainly in corporate culture we have that um, sense of needing to prove oneself and to perform but when you put that that same set of cultural norms into a mountain environment where there's a very distinct and measurable physical skill set it it ups the ante yeah. because suddenly suddenly it's not just like can this person perform on this, this deal or this team? Will we deliver for our client? It's more like, will they hold my weight if I fall into a crevasse? Can they rescue me? Yeah. And so it, it really, this really brings out, um, you know, people are quite, uh, you know, it's quite cut and dried. It's like either you can do it or you can't. And I don't, you know, no offense to you if you're a smaller female or a smaller male, but if you can't do it, I, you're just not good enough. And so it's very, it's a very um, interesting environment to do research in that also has parallels to the, the corporate world. But for me, what I, what I suspect is that um, gender minorities in the mountain-based professions, I suspect have been given more opportunities I use the word opportunity a little bit uh, cheekily there, have been given more opportunities to develop resilience because of having to persevere through cultural norms that have uh, you know, seen them as weak and they've needed to find creative ways through that in order to survive. Oh. And I suspect that the high suicide rates we see amongst men, uh, this profession has approximately six times the national suicide yeah. rate, I think that what we're seeing is that because men are uh, privileged in some ways, but paying quite a high cost around silence about their emotional pain, mm -hmm. um, that when there are larger critical incidents, either an avalanche or a near miss or fatality, or even this, you know, the current world situation we find ourselves in, that men have had less opportunity to cultivate resilience in the same way. Yeah. And so what I, the conversation I'm interested in facilitating with my research right now is, is how do we together cultivate resilience? How do we thrive in the midst of cultural norms that uh, privilege a certain form of masculinity over all else? Um, and what, how, what do we have to learn from uh, gender minorities who have been sort of on this personal journey of artfully dancing, you know, in and out of these cultural norms and maybe at some moments really embodying that mountain masculinity in order to be seen as competent, but in other ways, you know, bringing in their femininity, you know, maybe through the back door or, or maybe the front door, I don't know. And then how can we 
you know, see the ways that men are having these conversations. And my hope is that by studying, um, you know, individuals and teams that we, we will understand collectively in a global professional community, how to better support resilience um, in a profession where failure is not just simply bottom line, mm-hmm. it's, it's life or yeah. death. And that's at times with very significant consequences, you know, multiple casualty incidents. And so I think that this is a very rich research environment. And for me, the, the joy that comes from shifting my focus into thriving is just, it's, it feels very powerful for me. And it feels like um, a forward looking uh, approach to these topics. And I think it also honors some of that complexity, you know, that, that those who have suffered disproportionately from sexual harassment and gender discrimination, um, you know, in no way would I try to, you know, look at the silver lining or diminish the deep pain and perhaps lasting psychological consequences for many. But I do think that there have been very hard fought, valuable lessons learned that the rest of us Um, you know, and I include myself, that we can all share together. And so I do see this as a coming to the table, a shared conversation that's global in scope and that it's, it's focused on, okay, we know these cultural norms exist. Now what? How do we thrive together? What have we learned from persevering through those cultural norms? What have we learned that will help us uh, just speak more honestly um, and compassionately to one another and, and what are the strategies? Like really my hope is that this produces a bit of a, a how to thrive, like almost a checklist, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. not that I would yeah. ever want to reduce my PhD <laughs> to a checklist, but somebody will, you know, if you don't, <laughs> I know, like, I think it's great. And my hope is that I can just, I can just say, you know what, this is where, this is where we can thrive. And part of it, you know, Berdal and others, um, that are working in this space, you know, there's a lot of good work about chronicling the, you know, the measured impacts of these cultural norms, but almost every study ends with, you know, some like, it's kind of like the get out of jail free card for academics. It's like, yeah, more research is needed on yeah, what to yeah. do next. And I'm like, well, <laughs> shit guys, like I'm in that profession too. I'm not just like in my office in an yeah. academic institution, I'm in the field. And quite frankly, it's not good enough. Like we, I, my colleagues and I, um, you know, we need these tools. Like, what do you do after you lose a client in an accident? What do you yeah. do when a colleague bullies and shames another in front of you? What do you do when you're sexually harassed at work or assaulted? It's like, oh my gosh, like how, we need tools. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm hoping to be able to move the conversation into um, some sort of strategic positive outcome where, um, we get a better understanding of how to foster resilience and how to thrive. Because I think that, you know, what we're, the pain of learning, which learning is painful, it's challenging for us as humans, you know, we have to face some discomfort in the learning journey. I think the pain of learning is less now than the pain of just floating and coasting by on the status quo. And I think that we've reached that point where we're willing 
to face that fear of like, what does experimenting towards a better future look like? We're willing to lean into that uncertainty um, because we're, we're getting a really good handle that, you know what, the status quo is just, it's just not serving us. Um, and it's, it's just clear that the time to change has come. And so I'm hoping to be able to chart how we might change together um, and valuing all of those voices of folks who've persevered over the years and, and cultivated their own personal strategies for how to thrive and be resilient in the midst of this. I, um, I love that as a, a capstone to our conversation, you know, moving into this idea of thriving. And certainly what's become clear to me is that you are the person to do this, um, <laughs> you know, mostly because of who you are. Uh, but it, the fact that you're working in it and and such a passionate researcher at the same time it's um it, it's it's refreshing to see and um and it's just been such a great conversation with you i i want to make sure that my listeners know where to find you so i'm going to link everything up in the show notes but you've got you have you just you have so much going on, Rachel. So <laughs> is everything on your website? Like where should people go to find out more? Yeah. Uh, RachelDRimer.com. That's going to be the best place to find me. Um, and I've got links to published work and, uh, you know, links to other interviews and, um, yeah, and a whole host of resources as well. Um, workshops. It's a, by the way, I'll, I'll plug that. It's a really great resource list. Um, there, there, you have one, I know right now the, on, you know, thriving or dealing with pandemic stuff. There's, it's stuff that's not, not your status quo. And it's really valuable for anyone who's, who's in this field or not. Um, just want to make sure, you know, I, I plug that as well. So your mm -hmm. website's one place to go. Is there anywhere else people should go to find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn if folks want to reach out to me that way. Um, but my, you know, my, my emails on my website and folks can, can reach out and uh, yeah, any question is a good question. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, well, thanks for being on the podcast and sharing all that you've been through. It felt like a story of stories and I really, I really appreciated it. I know that, um, that it's going to be a great, one for the listeners. So thanks for being on the podcast. And um, I can't wait to get this episode live. Thank you so much. <laughs>